0: Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, if someone were to hold a gun to your head and say to you, summarize the Bible in one sentence, what would you say? You've got a gun to your head and you have to come up with one sentence which summarizes the entire message of the Scriptures. Well, you wouldn't go wrong if you would go to John 3 verse 16. It is the most beautiful and the most succinct summary of the gospel that you could imagine this gospel packed into this text in so many aspects there's God's eternity there's God the creator there's the eternal council of peace there's the sovereign electing grace of God the work of the trinity in salvation the miracle of the incarnation God's righteous wrath man's fall man's total depravity and just condemnation and there's the free gift of eternal life in Jesus Christ all packed into these few words And then there's also the broad sweep of of revelation and redemptive history. There's the creation of the world, the fall, the preparation for and the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, the preaching of the gospel, the final judgment, and the consummation of Christ's work in the restoration of believers into perfect communion with God. But not just that. This text is also very personal. Personal. In this text, God is saying, I love you. Specifically, I gave my son for you. God wants you to believe. He wants to save you from perishing. He wants you to live with him forever. This is the triune God of your baptism speaking to you. The God, Father, who loved the world. God, the Son, who came to save and God the Spirit who works faith and transforms dead sinners into children of the living God. And our text this morning is good news. It's gospel coming to us from our beloved Father. It's gospel, good news coming to us in a world full of bad news. Every day we turn on the radio, we look on the internet, we read the newspapers, and there's bad news following bad news. And that bad news isn't just out there in the world. But that bad news is in our lives as well. As we deal with all kinds of consequences of sin and with sins themselves. And sometimes in this life, things become so hard. The sin and the suffering, it just is all so overwhelming. That we think to ourselves, make it stop, Lord make it stop. When will this end? And it is into this context of sin and suffering and brokenness that God speaks powerful words of love, life, and restoration. And in our text, we see that out of love, God gave his son as the only hope for a world of death and ruin. And those are the three things we're going to, these are the three things we're going to consider under this text now, the ruin, then the redemption, and then the restoration of this world. So we begin with ruin. Look how our text begins. It begins with a little word of three, three letters, for. And when we see these connecting words in the scriptures, we should ask questions. What is the for, for? What is the for, Therefore? Well, the four connects us to with what happened in the preceding verses. What happens in the preceding verses? We read them from chapter 3, verse 1 on. Here's Nicodemus, a Pharisee, a teacher of the law. He's coming to the Lord Jesus at night. And there's this discussion that goes on. And the Lord Jesus is trying to get Nicodemus to understand that he has everything backwards. Because Nicodemus represents the very height of human effort of a religion based on human merit that man will make things better by just trying harder just trying one more time trying to get a little bit further with his holiness and the lord jesus over and over and over contrasts that with the truth he says nicodemus that's darkness we need light you're looking at the flesh We need the spirit. You're fixated on the earthly. We need the heavenly. What you're holding on to leads to death, Nicodemus. You need life. You're looking here below. You need to look up above. You need to be born not just from your mother, but you need to be born again. Or you can also translate, you need to be born from above. And then in the final verses that come before our text, The Lord Jesus makes a reference to this scene of the people of Israel in the desert. They had once again displeased the Lord by their sin, their rebellion, and their disobedience. And the Lord has sent judgment in the form of serpents, and they're being hurt, and they're dying from these serpents and their bites. And in that terrible scene of of sin and suffering and judgment, Moses is told by God to lift up a bronze serpent on a pole and everyone who looks at that serpent is saved from death. And the Lord Jesus says to Nicodemus, you remember that serpent, Nicodemus? You're a teacher of the law. You know the stories. You know what happened in the history of God's people. Well, just like that serpent was lifted up, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. And when John here records this, he uses a word for lifted up there in verse 14, which doesn't just mean raise up, but it's got the the overtones of, of to be exalted, to be raised up and exalted and almost glorified. So when John uses this verb throughout his gospel, it doesn't just talk about physically putting Jesus up on a cross but in it is also packed all the meaning of Jesus subsequent resurrection and ascension and glory and power and victory not just the cross but the resurrection and the ascension are packed into that verb now why why does the son of man have to be lifted up just like that serpent in the wilderness well our text explains For God so loved the world. You see, the Israelites had a problem. They had these snakes. And these snakes were bad. And these snakes were killing people. They were dying. There was terror. There was death on every side. And they needed a solution, didn't they? And where could they find that solution? Could they find that solution by looking around and discussing it with each other and doing some group work and some cooperation? Forming a committee and coming up with some kind of answer? Could they perhaps say, you know what, this hurts. Ow, and uh, my friend just died and I'm starting to die, but this is just a natural part of life. Let's just accept it. Could they do that? Would that have helped? Would that have solved the problem? Could they have tried to tame the snakes? Could they have just said, well, I'm just going to imagine that this doesn't exist. I'm going to pretend this isn't happening. Would that have helped? No. There was only one chance that the people of Israel had to survive this judgment. And that was to look. They had to look up. They had to fix their eyes on that symbol of God's salvation. You know, we're not in the desert, and we're not being attacked by snakes, which is a good thing. But we live in a world which is, in a sense, a slimy snake pit of sin. We live in a world where there are many slimy, slithering serpents of sin that are attacking us in so many ways. And we live in a world which is under the judgment and the wrath of God, and we experience consequences of that. And we need to look up too, because there are no solutions here below. There is no life, there is no escape here below. What is the solution? Well, look at the first two words of our text. For God. There it is. For God. He is the one. He is the beginning of all things. He takes the initiative. He is sovereign. It's always God. It always begins with God. You open the Bible to the first page. In the beginning, God. He is the beginning of created reality. He is the beginning of creation. He is the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning, the end, the God of hope, our only hope. When Paul writes to the Ephesians, he reminds them that when they were without God, they were without hope in the world. And this God so loved the world. The scripture teaches us that God is love. And because he is love, he loves. That's what he does. That's who he is. Now, love is a difficult word to deal with for us because we have so much ersatz love, so much pseudo love, so much fake love. The word is abused and misused in so many ways in books and and movies and and, and TV and, and on the Internet. The love of God is not that false, fake stuff. It's not the self-interested, emotional, passing feeling which Hollywood tries to sell us. But love, the love of God, true love, real love, is a fierce and an abiding and a faithful commitment to always seek the good of the object of love. And that means, brothers and sisters, that God is always there. He doesn't leave. He doesn't abandon. He doesn't forsake. He is slow to anger. He doesn't cut off contact when things get inconvenient for him, but he just loves and he loves and he keeps on loving with patience and kindness. And so when Adam and Eve turn their backs on him, when Adam and Eve betray his love, God doesn't respond in kind. But he He pursues them with his love. Adam, where are you? The first words that God speaks after the fall are not words of judgment or anger or frustration or disappointment or how could you do this to me? But the first words to those rebellious sinners are words of love. Adam, where are you? God wants to maintain and save and restore relationships. And that's why Jesus came. And that's why Jesus died. And that's why Jesus was lifted up on the cross. For God so loved the world. Now notice what our text does not say. It doesn't say, For God loves everyone. A lot of people read the text this way. God is love and God loves everyone and God loves the whole world. And you sinner, you're living in your sin and you don't love Jesus and you don't seek holiness and you don't have any repentance for your sins. But that doesn't matter because God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches very clearly that for the unrepentant sinner, the plan that God has for his or her life is eternal judgment. That's what the Bible teaches. But notice what the text says. God so loved the world. It's in the past tense. And it refers to a one-time act in relation to the cosmos. It refers to the decree of God to send his Son to save a people redeemed for his glory. God so loved the world. The world in our text is the Greek word cosmos, and we've got the same word in English. It refers, it's a very broad word, it has a lot of shades of meaning. It refers to the entire universe, the entire created order, but especially to the world of men, humanity, the crown of creation, the reason why God made everything. Now this cosmos that God created and that he loves is a work of art. You think of the galaxies, breathtaking distances between the stars. You think of the mountain ranges and the the oceans and the prairies and the the complex ecosystems and the breathtaking complexity of the human body and and the cells and the, the tiny universes within the molecules and the atoms with all the quarks and all the other tiny little particles. And towering above all this great, glorious complexity of creation is the crown of creation, man created in the image of God, a masterpiece. That's what God's creation is. It's a masterpiece. But it's a, it's a ruined masterpiece. It's a destroyed masterpiece. It has, been, it has been made corrupt by the sin and rebellion of God's children. And so it needs, needs to be restored. It needs a painstaking restoration. Imagine a, a work of a great master hanging in a museum and somebody comes and throws a couple of buckets of acid and, and ink and paint onto it. That would be a ruined masterpiece. And so it needs to be restored. Now we know this, don't we? We, we see it in our everyday lives. We, we see those two aspects of the creation. We see God's glory. We see the beauty. We see the joy. And we see so many good things that, that even the fall and the curse cannot hide. That, that the heavens declare the glory of God. The firmaments declare his handiwork. But we also see the ugliness, don't we? We see the, the results of sin. We see pain, and we see death, and we see brokenness. Now, how are we supposed to deal with this? How are we supposed to square these two things? Well, the the unbelieving idea of evolution says, well, this is normal. This is natural. This is the way things are. It just developed that way, and this is good. But we know that's not true. We know that that's not how things were in the beginning. We know that it's not supposed to be this way. We know about man's sin. We know about man's rebellion. And then we have to find out, we have to figure out, how can this be solved? Because man can't handle this problem. Man can't solve this problem. If we would love the world, all we would be able to do is love the world the way it is and all its brokenness and sin. That's not going to do anything. That's why the Bible says, whoever loves the world, the love of the Father is not in in him. We're not allowed to love the world. But God loved the world. Why? Because God knows how the world is supposed to be. God loved the world that he made. God loved the human race the way he made it. He made it good, 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 very good. And God doesn't accept the filth and the brokenness and the corruption which has come into his good creation. So he has decided to do something about it. He so loved the world that he gave his only son his only son. How much is God willing to spend on this restoration project? You're building a church building, so you have a budget, and there's a certain amount that you're willing and able to spend, and then you have to come to a limit. What is God's limit for the restoration, for the renovation project for this universe? Well, it's his son. He gave his son He gave the blood of his beloved son, the one with whom he lives in eternal, sweet, intimate communion and love. There is no greater price to be paid. There is no greater gift to be given. Now notice that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. This is his initiative. This is sovereign grace. But sovereign grace... And sovereign initiative always comes with a call to human response and to faith. The sending of the Son and the call to faith and, and repentance go together. And see what the Scripture says. He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish. That whoever believes in Him. It doesn't say He gave His only Son so that everybody who goes to church on Sundays will be saved. It doesn't say He gave His only Son so that everybody who's a member of the right church will not perish but have everlasting life. But what it says is he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. The text, which we have translated here, whoever, literally says everyone. So it says this, whoever believes in him, we got that in our text here, but it says he gave his only son that everyone Believing him should not perish but have everlasting life. This is a universal call to faith and repentance. Everyone is called to bow the knee and to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. There is enough grace for every sinner. Yes, God has chosen before the foundation of the world his elect. Yes, Jesus died on the cross for his sheep. That's a truth. And at the same time, the gospel goes out indiscriminately and we never have to say, well, maybe there's not enough forgiveness for you. We never have to say that. There's a guarantee and a promise here from God. Everyone who believes will not perish, but will have everlasting life. That's a promise to you and to all who hear the gospel and respond in faith. Now our text says that, He sent his son that whoever believes in him should not perish. It's not a word we use a lot, I don't think, perish. It means to be lost or to be destroyed. This is the world we live in, a world of perdition. You remember the serpents we talked about? Well, we see them, don't we? Everywhere we see the brokenness of this world. We see the curse on sin. We see thorns and sickness and, and accidents and death. We see the results of Adam and Eve's rebellion all around us. And we taste that bitter fruit as well in our lives. And some of us know it very well because of loved ones or because of ourselves going through terrible sickness or losing loved ones. So that's the general experience of of sin. But then there's something also that comes a little closer. There are the sins of others that are committed directly against us. There are people that oppress each other. There is persecution. There is bullying. There is unfairness. There is unkindness. There is unfaithfulness. There is gossip. There is abuse. There are broken relationships. Sinners... Live in a world of sin and hurt and brokenness, and so sinners go out and they hurt and they break others. But there are also there's also another level at which we experience that snake pit of sin in which we're living. And these are the sins that come out of our own heart our own old nature, our sins, our temptations, our anger and bitterness and selfishness and malice and deceit and lust and impurity, unfaithfulness, jealousy, envy, greed, and hatred. And Paul, he lists these kinds of things, and then he solemnly says, I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. That's what it means to perish. It means to be outside of the kingdom of God. It means to be banished from God's gracious and loving presence. And when you are banished from God's presence, you are banished from life itself. You are banished from the light. There is only death and darkness and wrath and judgment left. That's what it means to perish. It means that all those different levels of sin come together and destroy us now and forever. That doesn't sound good, does it, children? That doesn't sound nice. It's not. But here is the good news. God sent his only son so that everyone who believes will not perish. And it makes us think of the Lord speaking through Isaiah the prophet in chapter 45, where he says to his people, Turn to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. And when he says, turn to me, literally, he says, face me, look at me, look at me, and you will be saved. It's that simple. It's that simple. Now, we have to understand the perishing before we understand the solution and the escape from it. If you don't know that you're sick, why would you go to the hospital? If you don't know that you're sick, you're not going to go visit the doctor and say, heal me. We have to understand our need in order to find the solution to the need. And so the question to you this morning is, do you understand your need? And don't go looking around the sins of your brothers and sisters and and your neighbors and co-workers and the world in general and the politicians. I mean, you can find a lot of stuff to talk about. But how about your life? Do you need Jesus. Do you need the Savior? Do you need his blood? Do you need to look at him lifted up? Because all around you there is death and dying. All conspires for my death and dying. Sin poisons my relationship with God. It poisons my relationship with others. It poisons my own soul. And even the deepest recesses of my own soul conspire to destroy me. And the sinner evaluates his situation, and he says, woe is me, I am lost, I need a Savior. And it's when we're in that sweet spot of knowing that we are lost in ourselves, that's when we are driven to look, to turn, to see him high and exalted, To see the Lord Jesus on the cross victorious over sin and victorious over death. To see the Lord Jesus raised to the right hand of God, sovereign over the world, sovereign over my life, sovereign and in control, powerful to save, a perfect mediator, a perfect reconciler, man accepted into the presence of a holy God. He is the one I need. He is my only hope. And when I put all my faith and trust in him, then you know what? Sin doesn't define my life anymore, but Christ does. When I look to the risen and exalted Christ, all of a sudden, all those slimy, slithering serpents of sin, they may hurt a little bit, but they can no longer destroy me. They can no longer rule my life. And that brings us to the last point in our text, restoration. God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. What does the scripture say? John 17, 3, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. That's eternal life. Eternal life is not something that's going to happen later only. Eternal life begins right here and right now. Eternal life is knowing someone. It is knowing Jesus and knowing the Father in Him and through Him. And when you know the Lord Jesus and you have a relationship with Him, that's not just knowing about Him. It's not just a, a kind of an intellectual knowledge we're talking about. And we'll discuss that more this afternoon when we deal with Lord's Day 7 in the afternoon service. But the Bible says that even the demons believe... And they tremble. They've got the good sense to tremble because they know all the facts about God. They know all the facts about Jesus. They know all the facts about the cross. They know exactly how salvation works. They've had thousands of years to figure it out. They've been around for a long time. They know, but they know that this doesn't do anything for them. It doesn't save them. It just judges them. So just knowing the facts is not enough, brothers and sisters. Here's the question to you this morning. Are you happy with the knowledge of demons? The right answer is no. We don't want to just know about God. We want to know God. We don't want to just know about Jesus. We want to know Jesus. We want to have intimate communion with him, an intimate relationship that we love him deeply. We believe in him. The powerful work of his spirit we experience in giving us new hearts. In giving us sure knowledge and firm confidence that the word of God is true. And that God has given to me forgiveness and righteousness and salvation. When we know Jesus and we love him from the heart. Then those serpents, they're not biting me anymore. But they're biting the dust. They may keep trying to hurt us. But in the power of the Lord Jesus Christ, we we stomp on the head of the serpent. We crush the head of the serpent. Everyone born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. And that's why we go to church every week, right? I mean, there's nothing new, hopefully, in the preaching from week to week. It's always the same message. But we need to hear it, we need to hear the gospel. We need to hear Christ and we need to be reminded that there's no 12-step program that's going to fix your life. There's no amount of hard work that's going to fix your problems or deal with your sins. doesn't matter what sin you're fighting. If you're fighting to stay faithful to your wife or husband in your marriage and you're being tempted, if you're fighting with the sin of pornography or gossip or, or hatred or resentment, doesn't matter what it is that you're fighting and we're all fighting, aren't we? But no amount of hard work and just trying a little bit more and putting more energy into it is going to solve our problem. There's only one answer. There's only one solution. If I want to live and not perish, then I have to look up and I have to see the exalted Christ and I have to believe in him and I have to embrace him in faith and then I will have life. And then sin does not have dominion over me anymore. That's why Jesus comes to us every Sunday again in the preaching of the gospel and in the holy sacraments. And that's why we love Jesus. Because though our heart and our flesh may fail, he is the strength of our heart and our portion forever. His love is better than life itself. And I will give up everything I have and everything I am to be with the Lord Jesus because his light pours into the darkness of our broken little lives and transforms them from glory to glory. That's why we come every Sunday with hungry hearts to hear about Jesus and to know him more. And that's why we do missions in evangelism. That's why a soup kitchen is very nice. People are hungry. We help them. That's good. But that's not enough. Because human efforts are not going to fix our neighbor's problems or our country's problems. And we don't Evangelize and do missions with the object of having everybody act like us and think like us and dress like us and make decisions like us. Our goal is not that everyone here in St. Albert is going to come to church every Sunday morning and then afterwards go home and eat bolter cook and chabakis before lunch. But we want our neighbors and our co-workers and the community in which we live, we want them to know Christ. And to be like Christ. And we declare the gospel to a suffering and broken and messed up world. In that darkness, we call people to the light. In the brokenness of the culture of death, we call people to life. In a world of people hating one another and being hated, we proclaim a God who loves, who loves so much that he gave his son. And this is the message for us. It's the message for our community. God loved the world. God has not given up on this world. God has provided a solution. And today is the day of salvation. Today, when you hear his voice, do not harden your heart, but receive the Lord Jesus Christ into your heart. Because he is the solution. He is the answer. In him by faith you will be part of the work of cosmic restoration. Because you know what? God loved this world so much that he's not going to leave it the way it is after the fall. Behold, I make all things new, says the Lord. There will come a day, says the scripture, when once more he will shake the heavens and the earth. And when he does that, there's going to be a great separation. All the junk... All the filth, all the sin, all the things that don't belong to God's good and pure and holy creation, all the things which are against him and stand against who he is, all those things will be shaken out of this universe and they will fall away. All things, all movements, all philosophies, all creatures, all people who rebel against Christ will fall away. But all those who are connected to him, all those who are united to him by a true faith, they will remain. And on that glorious day, we will see the creation restored in all its glory and holiness. The restoration of the masterpiece. Every day, we're one day closer to that. Every week, we're one week closer to that day. The day when there will be no more sin and temptation. The day when there will be no more failing or no more falling into sin. No more betrayal. No more unkindness. No more hatred. No more perversity. No more abuse. And no more abusers. No more corruption. No more injustice. God will get rid of those things. And he'll get rid of the people that love those things. And then Then the knowledge of the glory of the Lord will fill the earth as the waters cover the sea. Then justice will roll on like a river, and righteousness like a never-failing stream. This is certain. It's a sure thing. There's no doubt about it. It is coming because God loved the world, because God sent his Son. Amen.